morning to those of you who I can see. And I keep checking, there's more of you online than I tend to think that there are. So we're thrilled to be worshiping with you as well. Um, it's fun to sing Christmas songs, isn't it? I love singing songs. Uh, we are going to keep our eyes on Jesus. That's what we do if you're newer to Crossview. We keep our eyes on Jesus. But we're in a season of Advent, which we'll talk about a little bit more this morning. It's a season where we're trying to learn how to wait well, how to prepare. We're, we're, we're trying to cultivate a longing for God to come. And we're going to be in the Gospels uh, at this, well, all year, really. We're starting a new series I'll talk about. But this morning, one of the ways the Gospel writers get us to prepare, to wait, get us in this mindset of Advent is through the character of John the Baptist. So actually, this week and next week, we're going to hang with John the Baptist. I feel like I was hanging with John the Baptist this week. It was really fun. And he was reminding me, I don't know if you have people who remind you of biblical characters in your life, but it was reminding me of one of my college roommates, a guy named Brandon. Uh, we all have our own stories. Brandon's story was different than mine, but we ended up rooming together for two years. We were bunk buddies. I was on top. He was on the bottom. And Brandon and I were very different, just very different people. Brandon operated, I would say, often outside of the normal way of doing things. And it often made me uncomfortable, to be honest, but in a good way. <laughs> and, and living with Brandon for two years, I grew. I learned something else about God. That often happens. You learn about people, about God through other people's relationships. And, and I think Brandon challenged how I thought about loving my neighbor, which is very prophetic. I mean, that's often what the prophets are doing, is challenging how we're loving our neighbor. And I was thinking of one story this week that really captured for me, and, and, and I don't know, in my mind made me think of John the Baptist. So, I, hope, I don't know, hopefully this makes sense to you guys. But I, I was living with Brandon, and I was doing homework when I was a chemical engineer. I was doing my chemical engineering homework. And, and Brandon just popped his head into our little office area, because we had all our beds in one room, and so we had our desks in another room. And he said, hey, I'm going to the post office. Anybody want to go? And, you know, I was in this season where I was like, God is stirring around Brandon in ways that I'm not used to. And I kind of want to, I keep hearing these stories. Brandon just had an eye for seeing people in need and loving them well. And so I was like, I, I don't know, you're going to the post I'm just going to go with Brandon. I just want to see. I got, I got no reason to go to the post office, but I have this feeling that God's going to do something. And so I go to the post office with Brandon. We, we just a normal trip. We walk in. And there's a guy asking for money. I don't know that he was homeless, but he was certainly in a time of need, and he's asking for money. And we kind of see him, but we go into the post office, we do our stuff. And as we come out, another man has appeared on the scene, a, an older man, and a, I remember he had a gray suit. I think he was a very successful businessman. Heard a little bit of his story. It wasn't always that way, but he had, he had succeeded in life, and he was doing well. And he, I think he saw this man asking for money, and it, and it both... It triggered his heart. He kind of wanted to help, but he was also mad that this guy was asking for money. And so we come out, and you can kind of hear this successful businessman is like, just picture like, point his finger, right? Just kind of lecturing, in his mind, tough love to this other man who's asking for help. So we walk out. I kind of see it. That stuff kind of sometimes makes me uncomfortable. I'm, I'm heading to the car, but Brandon doesn't. <laughs> Brandon just stops. And he just, he, just, he just begins to listen. And then ever so slowly, I don't know how he does it, but he just all of a sudden the three guys are in a circle. And I'm kind of on the outside watching. But Brandon somehow has just entered into this conversation. 
And he begins to ask a few questions. And I got to, Brandon's probably 20 or 21, but he's got a baby face. He looks like he's 16 years old. I'm not kidding. And so he's getting these two grown men, and this, this kid, he's 20, but he looks like he's 16. He enters in the conversation, and they begin to talk, and he begins to kind of understand what's going on. And, but, but Brandon, he brings up Jesus. That's what he does. And he finds out the man asking for money knows Jesus, loves Jesus. He's in a hard spot, but he knows and is trusting Jesus. And he finds out this other man who's been a little bit more successful in the business world also knows and loves Jesus. And this man is trying to explain to Brandon why he's handling the situation the way he is. He's sure he knows the best way to help this guy. And Brandon's mere presence begins to make him think differently about love. That's what I love about Brandon. And at one point, I don't know exactly how this happened, but I just remember a few minutes go by, and then this, this man who's got it all together looks at Brandon and says, well, what should I do? How do I help this guy? And Brandon's like, I don't know, but, uh, but there's a restaurant right there. I mean, you're doing well. Why don't you just go buy this guy a meal and have a conversation? Treat him like a human being. He's your brother in Christ. And the guy's like, all right. So this really poorly dressed, dirty guy, unkempt, and this super clean, like really well-dressed guy walk across the parking lot to eat, to share a meal together. <laughs> I mean, I just, that's, stuff that, that's the stuff that happens in the name of Jesus. And, and I remember going home and being like, man, you guys should have seen what God did. Brandon was just different. I never did anything like that, but Brandon... Brandon was the kind of guy who's just different enough that you'd go out into the wilderness just to hear what this guy had to say. Because he was going to challenge you. He was going to make you think differently. I don't know if you know people like that. I, guess, I, bet you do. I bet you know a couple people like that. We're going to talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was like that. But if, you're, if you weren't with us last week, we've started a new series. I don't have a fan. It's basically a year with Jesus. We're going to be in the Gospels for a year, and we're going through the church calendar. So I'll say a little bit more about that. We're in the season of Advent. I'll say a little more about that this week. But what I tried to submit to you last week is that we, have, we probably have lots of calendars, lots of ways that we organize our time in a year. And we live, if I can connect it to our last series, we live in modern-day Babylon. We have a Babylonian calendar. We need to understand the Babylonian calendar because we live in Babylon. So we have a secular calendar. We probably have many secular calendars. Since we're in the Christmas season, well, I think it's throughout the whole year in a consumeristic world, but much of our calendar revolves around when it's time to buy what. Right? In July, you buy fireworks. Now you buy presents. You don't buy mattresses now. You do that around presidents. That's when they're on sale, right? Like our, our, we, one of our secular calendars revolves around consumerism and purchasing and money. And you can have your secular calendar. You live in modern-day Babylon, but just know it's secular. <laughs> and what, what I'm trying to offer to you this year is a sacred calendar, a church calendar. It's not new. It's really old. And it just follows a rhythm every year of the life of Jesus. We're doing this, so we organize, we make Jesus the center of our lives. So that's what we're going to be doing. And I didn't really walk through all the seasons with you last so I'll do that. I'll probably do that throughout the year. But, but we're in the season of Advent where we'll be looking at gospel stories that prepare us for the birth of our coming King. And then we will launch into Christmas. Christmas is 12 days, 12 days of Christmas, right? 
It's a 12-day season where we will celebrate that our king has come. Hallelujah. And then we will move out of Christmas into what is called Epiphany. It's really the season of presence. We will emphasize Christ's presence made manifest. Primarily look at stories from the birth of Jesus into his early ministry. We're, again, we're, we're making Jesus the center of how we're, his life is how, how we organize our time. After Epiphany is Lent, it's the season of penitence and the season of Lent, we will seriously reflect upon the weight of our sin. It's what you do in Lent. Lent will give way to Easter, and Easter is a season of celebration. Easter is a 50-day period. Why? Because it parallels the 50 days of the resurrected Jesus on earth before he ascended. <laughs> right? There's, a, there's an intentionality to this around Jesus. Uh, and then we will launch into Pentecost, right, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and what that means. And then we launch into ordinary time, as we, as ordinary time is a long time, and it's a season of work. It's the season where we will emphasize Christ's call to live out the work of his kingdom through evangelism and discipleship as we practice life in community with one another, because we're here with purpose. So that's what we're going to be doing in the calendar but again, we're in Advent, the four weeks before Christmas, Advent, and we're with John the Baptist. So if you want to turn or just follow along, we're in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. We'll jump into the Old Testament too. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor, son of Caesar Augustus. As you well know, Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas, the, the son of one of the sons of Herod the Great, was ruler over Galilee, his brother Philip was ruler over Iturea and Trachonitis. Lysenius, we know less about him, was ruler over Abilene. Annas was the former high priest. Now his son-in-law Caiaphas was acting as the high priest. But they both, Luke includes them because they both held power in that circle. And at this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, John the Baptist, who was living in the wilderness. We're going to come back to verses 1 and 2. We'll start by focusing on verses 3 to 6. John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River. This is important. That the people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. It was a fresh start, a new beginning. And as often happens in these narratives, these Advent stories preparing us for our coming king, the prophets are quoted. Here Isaiah is quoted. Isaiah had spoken of John. Now Isaiah didn't know he was speaking of John. Remember we talked about he was just poetically imagining of what would happen. <laughs> but he dreamed of someone who would come, a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. Make straight his paths. The valleys will be filled. The mountains and hills made level. You should see it's a, long, it's a difficult terrain through the desert, through the wilderness when you're going up and down mountains and valleys. No, now it's all flat. It's going to be an easy road through the wilderness. The curves are straightened out. The rough places, all those difficult steps, they're, they're made smooth for you. No tripping. It's just an easy journey. And all people will see the salvation sent from God. God is coming to his people. To explain what John the Baptist was doing, the gospel writers lean into our sacred memory and remind us of the poetic, prophetic imaginations of the prophets. 
Isaiah is a frequent voice throughout the Gospels. And here, Isaiah 40 is brought up. We talked a lot about Isaiah last year, if you were with us. Isaiah in chapter 40 is a turn in his book. And he's actually writing this before, way before, but he's writing to the Jews who are in exile in Babylon. And we'll even see this because we're going to look at Malachi this morning. The prophets tend to go two routes. If they feel like you're proud, if, if you're not treating your neighbor with love, if you're, if you're arrogant, if you're wicked, if you're selfish, if you're complacent, if you're comfortable in your sin, then they will challenge you. They will challenge you and warn you. But when you've been broken down, and we'll talk about being stripped down, when you've been humbled, right, and if you have been exiled out of Jerusalem into Babylon, we talked a lot about that in our last series, you've been humbled. Your world has been that. Then the prophets come with comfort. That's how Isaiah 40 begins, comfort. I've come to comfort my people, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to give you hope. So Isaiah's writing to the, he's prophesying, he's, he's writing this poem about the Jews in exile, and God is going to come to you. I know Jerusalem is a long ways from Babylon, and there's a big wilderness desert, but God is going to make a highway, and he's going to come to you. And all the peoples will see the salvation of this God. That's what Isaiah is saying. Now I'll come back to Isaiah 40 at the end. I also want to jump, jump to Malachi chapter three. Chapters 3 and 4. Now, Malachi isn't mentioned in Luke 3, but Luke has already referenced Malachi in chapter 1, verse 17. It's another important passage for understanding John the Baptist. If you want to turn, you can, or you can follow along. I'm just going to read a few verses. Malachi is giving much warning, and, and primarily to the priests. I mean, there's a corruption in the priesthood. And Malachi is, ah, don't be complacent and comfortable in your sin. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, look, I am sending my messenger. And he me. And then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. This is John the Baptist. Again, Malachi doesn't know. He just knows that God is going to come. Yes, actually, at this point, the people have returned to Jerusalem, and they've, they've built the temple, but... But the presence of God hasn't filled the temple. God will come. But there will be someone who prepares the way. And you need, and Malachi is saying, you need someone to prepare the way. You better prepare yourself for the coming. He raises the question, who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him? If you are proud, complacent, comfy, you don't realize he is going to come to change things and refine things. Now, if you're humble, This is good news because this, this one, God will come and he, he will be a blazing fire and he will refine you. I like this. Like a strong soap that bleaches clothes, he will make you clean. <laughs> As I said last week, is it good? Is it a good day or a bad day when God comes? It depends on who you are. If you're proud, it is not a good day. If you're wicked, it is not a good day. But if you're humble, if you're open to the healing presence of this God, this is the best day. It's a day of continuous. Now we'll jump to chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord of heaven's army says, The day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. And on that day, the arrogant, the proud, the wicked 
They'll be burned up like straw, consumed, roots, branches, and all. It's not going to be a good day for them. But for you who fear my name, for you who are open to my leadership, the son of righteousness, will rise with healing in his wings. And you will be free. You will leap with joy. It's good news. I love the imagery here. You've got to enter into the poetic imagery. You've got to think about those cold days that are coming. You know when we have, I know, actually it's been pretty good in December, but we're going to have like a week where you don't see the sun, right? And it's going to be cold, and it's going to be blistery, and then a day is going to come, maybe December 15th, and the sun is going to shine, and we're going to be reminded of how warm. I love, my car's a darker car. It's so warm on sunny days. You're going to feel the sun on your face and on your skin and through your coat. Malachi's saying, the sun of righteousness is going to rise. A new day in this darkness, a new day is going to dawn. And, and, this, and the rays of the sun, as you feel the rays of those of the sun, healing. It's going to heal your soul. It's going to make you well. And then we get, and this is literally the end of the Old Testament as we have it. Verses 5, and this is how the Old Testament ends. I've tried to tell you before, the Old Testament is very much a story without an ending. (laughs) Because this is how it ends. Sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, right? And his preaching is going to turn people and you, you can read with it, but, but this is how it ends. I'm, it ends with, I'm sending you someone. Well, when's he coming? <laughs> and it's interesting that he talks about Elijah. It would make sense. If you, if you know the Old Testament story, there are two guys that, that aren't, they, they don't die like everyone else. I love the story. It's a, it's a short story. It's in Genesis chapter 5, but there's this guy named Enoch. You read through Genesis 5. All these guys are mentioned, and this is their name, this is Enoch, and it says, Enoch walked with God. And there's no mention of Enoch. We are told there is a way to live that doesn't lead to death. And it's got our attention, right? What does it mean to walk with God like Enoch? How can I find this way to live that doesn't lead to death? And then you've got Elijah, who's a very important prophet, and he's kind of left waiting. The Old Testament ends and we're left waiting. What is this way of life that doesn't lead to death? When will this messenger come who's preparing the way for the Lord? And when will God come? Very clear Elijah who is to come. And Jesus himself is God coming to us. He is the way that doesn't lead to death. So John the Baptist steps on the scene and he is preparing us for God to come for.
Your God is faithful. Your God is not the promises and we are encouraged we are amazed we are comforted we are strengthened we are given hope to see the way that god always comes through on everything that he said but the other thing that is happening with john the baptist that is forcing us to look back so we can look forward is that he's really reenacting. he's a creative preacher way more creative than me (laughs) He's reenacting these stories of Israel. He's reenacting the coming out of Egypt and going through from slavery in the past. And he'll do it again because God is faithful. Challenging the one true God. And then God sent Elijah. God has sent again and again. God has sent someone to his people. We have sacred memory from our scriptures. Find people of this on their discipleship journey. I did it this week. I had the opportunity to meet with somebody, ask permission to share this. Well, but I'm waiting ugly. And so I began to ask questions because I always get nervous. I say we should never should on ourselves, right? I know I should be doing that. I don't like it when we say that, right? Because then we're judging and we're not allowing God to define for us what is good and what is bad, what is beneficial and what's harmful. And so I just get compassionately curious and I ask questions. Well, what does waiting look like in Jesus? And we landed on the reality that waiting is not always pretty and it's not always easy. And part of how we got there is because this person has invited me to the, I think, waited beautifully. And the hand of God was all around them and I saw and I still see the fruit of the Spirit in this person's life because of how they waited on God. And because I knew that story, I simply, hey, walk me through because I know. You can't tell me otherwise. I know that God was with you two years ago. And I saw you wait. Walk me through. How did God show up then? And it was really cool to see the light. Oh, yeah. That was harder than I thought it should be, too. And then what happened is this person went, well, you know what, Jeff? The last two weeks, while I thought God was absent, actually, he was here. And he was here. And he showed up to this person. I hadn't seen it before, but I see it right now. I mean, sometimes we have to look back. In order to look forward. Sometimes we look back and we remind ourselves of who God is. And what God has done. Both in this story but in our own personal story. And we begin to hope differently for the future. We have to remember that God has gotten us through difficult dark days before. And he'll do it again. Because he's faithful and he hasn't changed. (laughs) And you have your own memories. Maybe you've been in trouble before, and God came alongside you and rescued you, and he got you through it. You weren't abandoned, even if it felt like you were. Maybe right now you're frustrated by something you're living through. You're mocked by a circumstance. You're angry.
Maybe Advent has come at just the right time. You don't have to despair. You can hold on to hope because God is coming and he's going to act. Had a lot of great discipleship conversations this week. One of you emailed me these words. It's been a hard year and I've learned a lot about patience and waiting during the year and I want to say something holy about it, but it's mostly just been hard. And I've done so much waiting that I kind of lost sight of I was just waiting for the sake of waiting. I think I kind of forgot that Advent is about waiting, but much about hoping. I know how to wait, but I'm still learning how to hope, aren't we all? Because my whole soul needs to remember to hope because of the radical, you could even say illogical love and character of God, and not because my circumstances look hopeful. I want to say that the journey continues. <laughs> But it's also honest and appropriate to say that my sanctification continues. Waiting in hope. Well, let's go back to Luke chapter 3 because there's one more thing I want to draw out of these first two verses. I read them earlier. 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Tiberius is, Pontius Pilate is the political power in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. They are, they're the political power. He's going to talk about Herod, Antipas, the, the family of Herod the Great. Some people think Herod the Great was the wealthiest man alive. I don't, I don't, I don't know how you verify that, but, 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 but there's economic power. Caiaphas and Annas, they represent religious power. And I want you to see, this is part of the story of John the Baptist. God looks at Jerusalem and says, nope, I'm not going, I'm not going to Pontius Pilate. No, I'm not going to Annas and Caiaphas. I'm not going to Herod. I'm not going to city, out in the wilderness. Out in the desert, there's John. I'm going to John. I mean, you've got to feel it. Power, power, power. But God says, I'm bypassing all of that, and the word of God is going to John the Baptist. That's where I'm going to move, and that's where I'm going to stir in the wilderness. Well, John the ba- we'll talk more about John the Baptist next week, too. We'll get into his actual message. You'll both love it and not love it at the same time, but it's good. It's good. Luke wants us to know about John the Baptist, that he appears in the wilderness, in the desert. Now Luke and the other gospel writers let us know that, that he's, a, he's a unique kind of guy. And, and he's, very, he's, he's doing what some of the more radical prophets did. Not all the prophets, but some of the more radical prophets. They just kind of, because they're critiquing the system. They're critiquing the power structures as they are. And because they don't want to be hypocritical and benefit from them, they put themselves outside of them. You see, that's what John goes to the edge of Israel. He goes to the Jordan River and he's foraging for his own food. He's operating out. I mean, he's, he's not working with the temple. He's operating outside. He's, he's wearing camel hide <laughs> and he's eating locusts and honey. He's a weird guy. He's operating outside of the system, but because he's got a lot to say, and people are anticipating, and they're longing, and so they, John, what do you, next, next, I hope you're longing, next week we'll see, what do you have to say, John? What is this message of repentance? We'll talk about his message next week. But it's clear that John is doing something radically different out in the wilderness. If you wanted, if you wanted it, you couldn't just get up and turn on your TV. You couldn't just pull out your phone, well, what did John tweet today? You had to make the long, uncomfortable, arduous journey out by Jericho to the wilderness, to the desert, to the Jordan River, if you wanted to hear what John had to say. 
You better be longing for the coming of the king if you make that kind of journey. You can't stay complacent and comfortable. You got to go find this guy in the desert to hear what he has to say. But remember, I mean, image, a metaphor. There's a smooth highway for our God to come to us in our own spiritual wilderness. God will bring comfort and good news to his people in the desert on the highway that John the Baptist in his preaching and baptizing has prepared. What is a spiritual desert? What is a spiritual wilderness? You know it, I know. It's that season of spiritual dryness. Parched. You're weak, you're hot, you're you're hungry. You're not thriving, you're just surviving. You're not sitting by a waterfall, you're not sitting by a pool. You're sweating in the desert. It's that apparent lifeless. Are Are there any trees out? Is there no shade? It's a desert. The wilderness, sometimes God feels far away. Maybe you don't. Now, yes, there are times in our spiritual lives when it's green pastures and bumper crops and it's full of life and it's enjoyable. And I say, enjoy those seasons. Just praise God and thank Him. Don't lose sight of Jesus. Be grateful and thankful for those seasons. But don't think it's always going to be that way because. If we're serious about being formed like Jesus, we need the wilderness. We need the desert. Really, honestly, most of the time, your spiritual maturity and your growth is going to happen in deserts. It's likely that your next spiritual... This week, whose ministry is thriving, they are totally in green pastures. There's leaping for joy, and I and I said, "You are thriving. Your ministry is flourishing." And they looked at me and they said, "Why? Why do you think that is?" ways and several difficult you said yes to jesus in the wilderness and look at what he's done in your life and i think that's why you're in this season of life and flourishing and green pastures because when you were in the wilderness you said yes to jesus and you're bearing the fruit of it now however again the christian journey is not 
mountaintop to mountaintop all the time. I had a conversation with one of my sisters this week. She's had a rough couple months, a little bit of her story with me, and I was, it was making me think. I love my sister. It was making me think about the last two years, and as we were trying to connect, sister, my sister and I are a lot alike, actually, and as we were trying to connect, I was, I was sharing some of my own wilderness wanderings and some of my own desert experiences of the last Jeff, are you going? And what I wanted to say was, no, I hate the desert. This is awful. But I had to say, yes. I hate to admit it, but yes. What did we talk about a couple weeks ago? God is working all things for good. I don't want to thank God for the desert, but I have to because I'm not the same person I was 24 months ago. And somehow I'm a different kind of person. Because what happens, in the, what, what happens in the wilderness? What happens is you're stripped down to the essentials of pure faith. When you're dwelling in the desert, you learn how to survive. You're just surviving. You can't carry much with you. It's too hot. It's too burdensome. So you only take what you need. You're not kicking, you're not carrying a lounge chair and all your inflatables. What, what's the, what are the only things I need to get through this desert? The desert Now, the Jews went out to the desert. They went out to the wilderness to hear John the Baptist. You and I don't have to go out. The desert will find you, right? The wilderness. I don't know when he's going to come. I know he's going to come.
And for some, I don't know where, they, but a few years ago, I just started picturing Jesus just like strolling through the desert. Everything's brown and dead all around him. Just sand, hot. But there's this, like, right where Jesus is, there's this, like, cool breeze. And I just see him, like, walking through the desert. Every part of your dry and weary soul. Oh, man, Jesus coming. He's coming. Jesus is going to quench every thirst in your soul. So we wait. Because God will come. And, oh, Jesus, we do want to learn from you. Because waiting means we don't have something we want, or waiting means us. And as much as we don't like to admit it, that means that part of us has to die who wait, who don't panic in the wilderness. Being the kind of people in the midst of this kind of society who says, I don't need that anymore. Sure, I can have that. We don't want to waste our waiting. We want to prepare because we know you're coming. We know you're coming. So come, Lord Jesus. (laughs) 